I'm Ricardo Deacon. I'm Orla McNeilis. Welcome to a special episode of The Recommendation Game. And today we're joined by film editor of Totally Dublin, a man responsible for single-handedly improving the average height of this podcast, is <laughs> Washing Murphy Hall. Uh, very happy to be here, uh, Ricardo and Orla. Thanks for having me. Glad Welcome. we're sitting down. Uh. <laughs> uh, today's film uh, was picked by Oshin and... As per usual, the only requirement for the film to be picked is that neither of us have seen it. So this week's film is The Draftman's Contract from 1982 from England, directed by Peter Greenaway, produced by David Payne, written by Peter Greenway, starring Anthony Higgins, Janet Sussman, Anne-Louise Lambert, Hugh Fraser, and music by Michael Nyman, Cinematography by Curtis Clark and edited by John Wilson. The film synopsis is Mr. Neville, a draftman with a rising stock amongst the gentry, escorted by Mrs. Herbert and her daughter, Mrs. Tolman, to produce 12 landscape drawings of their estate as a present to Mr. Herbert. Neville agrees with the condition. A clause is entered into the contract allowing him to have his pleasure with Mrs. Herbert during his stay. As he sets out to create these drawings, he grows heavily involved with the politics of the household and becomes unwittingly involved in a crime which his drawings could serve as evidence for. (laughs) You read that very, like, (laughs) straight. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I wonder, does that serve the movie or not? I'm not sure. Well, I guess sort of demand a dramatic reading. It does I think. a little. Yeah. That was not even remotely Shakespearean you didn't, enough. didn't use the air quotes for his pleasure. <laughs> well, I think that the listeners can't see me do air quotes. True, I don't know. They true. can see the implication somehow in their minds. And Oshin, since you chose the film, uh, what is your reasoning for your choice? Um, I think this is a really fascinating very sort of individual movie um it was recommended to me actually by my uh friend jules uh a few months ago and uh i was just so taken by sort of the aesthetic and and the ideas in it which hopefully we'll get to talk a little bit about here but i uh it, it's it's a film i just want everyone to see having seen it myself because it was just such a uh such a singular and strange movie that I uh, that I've been a, sort of a partisan for it ever since I saw it. You're spreading the word of yeah. the Drapper and Scott, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. So, Orla, what's your initial take of the movie? Uh, I'm just curious if you'd seen any of his other films before this one. Uh, no, I'd seen no Peter Greenaway films oh, wow. ever before. This is an interesting uh, introduction to his. Uh... <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, this is probably, uh, I'd only seen, um, oh, never, I'm not going to get this right now, uh, The Cook, His Wife, no, The, the cook, cook, The, the thief. thief, His Wife and Her Lover. Uh, that was the only one of us I'd actually seen, um, but I kind of knew vaguely of him by reputation, I suppose, because he has this weird thing of, um, I don't know if like dividing audiences or not, but certainly dividing other filmmakers. I saw an awful lot of like um like other filmmakers trashing him and stuff. I was like, mm, that's kinda interesting. But um yeah, I didn't think I was gonna like this at all from like the first ten minutes or so, because I was kinda it's very it has a weird like half very like televisual elements of it and they're really kind of clear in the opening it's about 10 minutes or so where they're all kind of sitting around having all those conversations and then it's sort of like in other parts incredibly cinematic it's this weird kind of like mix of the two styles almost but I think he kind of finds his way once he gets out of that initial kind of meeting where they initially set up the contract and everything but um yeah I really I can sure it's destroyed it's like strange like it's almost like Bunwellian or something like I kept thinking of Bunwell and I was like why I think it's he's almost like treating this sort of like aristocracy in the way that like um Bunwell dealt with the bourgeoisie in certain ways but that kind of like strange semi-surreal but like in this weird kind of like like hyper baroque like heightened kind of like his sort of weird take on it Mm. but um yeah, so it kind of surprised me. I, I, I couldn't get over, like, um, just how like, vastly entertaining this movie is. Like, mm. um, The beginning of the film is an interesting, uh, that, that you would take the Bunuel comparison, I think, because this yeah. opens with these uh, 
sort of um, really made up, like heavily make up sort of aristocrats. Yeah, sort of every, everything is incredibly like heightened, even for the period is like... But they're sort of, I guess, undermining appearance in a sense by discussing these sort of scatological, uh, sort of body sort of stories they're talking yeah. about. I piss like a racehorse, all the rest of it. But they're Body. saying it with these, like, you know, monocle clinching sort of grins on their faces. So it, it has this marrying of, uh, I guess, decadence with uh, with the scatological, which is not a million miles away from Pasolini as well. Yeah, um, definitely. And I think that would be one of his influences. Like, he's definitely um, a filmmaker that, well, he was an artist first, I think. Um, yeah. We can get to that later, kind of about how his background as an artist kind of informs this movie but um yeah he's definitely a filmmaker that has an awful lot of like filmic influences and like grew up with that those kind of filmmakers but um yeah this is a very greenaway film like it really encapsulates an off because it's in the kind of era as well that he was obsessed with like the kind of like mm. 17th century or whatever but um <laughs> i hope to about this is a it kind of because whenever the whole kind of like murder mystery kind of element of, is, is like properly not introduced, but it becomes more and more apparent. It becomes more and more like this weird crossover between like Midsummer Murders and Monty Python or something with like these strange, like, I mean, it's very, 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 very humorous. Um, it was like this just sort of like strange arch humor and incredibly, mm. like, incredibly quick dialogue as well. But, um, yeah, like, I, I mean, there, there are elements of this that I didn't quite it's it's kind of like an awful lot of his films where there's always something kind of like keeping you from the characters or something like where they're you feel like it's it's got kind of like strange stagey element which is part of the reason I didn't really like the 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 opening as well not just that it's televisual but it's quite stagey like it's very yeah anything that makes me think of theater as Ricardo knows is not necessarily a good thing but um because the characters the main characters, the characters of the two women that draw him into this contract, there's no real way into these characters because they're all fundamentally so unlikable. And I, I feel it, it a lot of the time, despite being like quite entertained by the movie, and it, I feel like, it, the, it, like even though, well, it's about like an hour and 40 minutes long, but yeah. it kind of rips along quite, like it has a, quite a quick pace, I think, despite the fact that an awful lot of it is just him sitting around looking through the frame and like, you know, drawing. But um, I think the one of the ways that this movie is kind of saved from that kind of like archness is through the humor somehow that it kind of it draws you in because it's so entertaining. But I still I still found that like it, it just it leaves you a little bit cold afterwards because it is so kind of when it ends, it's, it kind of ends the way I kind of expected it to. Um, once you kind of they unravel the plot of the women mm. and how they'd been using them all along and everything, and once that kind of came out, it was like ah okay okay. And so in the end, it was it left me feeling kind of satisfied, but not like I had really gained anything from it, if that makes sense. Because you know, it's just the kind of the the problem of having a character all like a load like basically all the main characters that are fundamentally unlikable but not interesting enough to really kind of grab you, I suppose, because they are these sort of like strange, heightened, almost like surreal characters, if that makes sense. Before we get into really delve into the movie, yeah. I just want to say my take on the movie. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Ricardo. <laughs> Ricardo <laughs> I went on for ages. It's your fault. You should never let me go for it. Ricardo, what do you think about the movie? Oh, thanks for asking. Uh, <laughs> Ricardo, I thought, what do you think about the movie? Well, partly as well, I could see Oshin like really wanted to like start tackling one by one your issues uh, with the movie. So I just wanted to make sure to get my two cents in before the, the fireworks start. Um, the only thing that I read on the movie and uh, before watching it like, I had no idea when it was set, where it was set, what it was about before watching it. Yeah, it was the it. same. I knew nothing. Uh, but, like, after watching, I only read one thing, and it's the first paragraph of the Roger Ebert review. I have no idea what he goes to <laughs> to say. He gives a, a four out of four stars review. <laughs> and I think that it nailed in the head why I like this movie. It says that it seems to be telling us a very simple story in a very straightforward way. And after it's over, you may need hours of discussion with your friends before you can be sure if even then exactly what happened. Mm. And I believe that's not only in a plot way, but also mm. in a, 
ideological way of the movie. I think that it's very interesting as well. The the idea of the artist being the artist in the movie that it reflects in a way what Greenaway is doing with the movie yeah, through the character. Yeah, kind of, it's kind of like Neville is him really yeah, in the movie. Like, uh, well, like I don't know that much about Greenaway, so I, I, mm. I would re- hesitate to say that he's a stand-in for the director. But as a meta way of explaining what he's doing as a filmmaker mm. to the audience, I thought that it was a very interesting way to approach the subject. Uh, I absolutely loved it. Like I, like I finished and I, I just like laughed to myself, going like, you know, that kind of like pleasant. I felt almost like satisfied and proud of myself for having watched it. But um, and afterwards, I was like, geez, for like a fairly niche podcast that we are, this is a very niche movie. As well. yeah, like a made for TV. Well done, like. Like, if we were a tennis player, it would be. Nishikori, uh, but oh, uh, no. you're gonna cut that out anyways. But uh, <laughs> um, no idea how many of those get cut out. But <clears throat> um, coming back to the movie, the 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 filmmaker in film that uh, reminded me the most of is perhaps because of the the visual way the Greenaway approaches the subject is the Enigma of Casper Hauser, the Werner Herzog <gasps> movie. Uh, even the fact that they're shooting in super 60 in 16 mil then blowing up to 35 mil using like absolutely terrible lenses so you have like (laughs) this weird haze but using that to your advantage the same way that Herzog did and also that kind of strange approach to acting and performance and I think it works even more in this movie because when you say the stagey thing, yeah. I, well, I, I think that I, the staginess think that needed. Yeah, but the staginess works more. I think as they move out of that first scene, I think definitely that uh, well, like, like that became like the because when it, that that <clears throat> first initial section ended for me and it got into when he gets to the house and initially starts properly, like that whole problem started to melt away whenever they were in that environment. I think it works much better. And just one final thing before we go in is coming from you as well as a pick. And knowing the wide range of movies that you appreciate from like Greek slow cinema to American Pie Beta House, <laughs> the, literally like in anything in between, uh, I had no idea what I was getting into watching it. And I think that was part of the delight of like that I felt in the beginning that it was kind of like a crappy version of Barry Lyndon. And then. That, yeah! And then, like, <laughs> like a like you know like those even sci-fi like the, movies the credits and everything and like yeah it, it, as uh, our guest uh is there any subject you'd like to tackle first well i would just like to say that if you hadn't already seen beta house which i know that you have i would have recommended that but there <laughs> there is a common thread and i uh the in terms of the, the opening scene is extremely jarring. The first time I watched that, I yeah. was uh, lying uh, on the couch, hung over, and I put the film on. You I was like, hungover? what is happening? Uh, this is bewi- a bewildering amount of dialogue detailing these stories that are unconnected. Yeah. Or uh, uh, initially appear to be. But what this scene does is prepares you for the ideas that are within the film, which is, uh, I guess, this sense of... Uh, unconscious uh, violence or unpleasantness that that belies the surface level. Uh, so we have a situation where we have these ar- this aristocratic family who want uh, portraits or or sorry, what what are they called? Et- uh, they want some drawings of their estate. Etchings, okay, drawings. I even, yeah, drawings of their estate, which is was common practice at the time. Uh, but in fact, these drawings are serving to illustrate a far more nefarious sort of plot. Um, and these grotesque stories, though humorous and, and uh, admittedly pretty ornate in their language, <laughs> I think serve to uh, lay the groundwork for what's to come afterwards and give you a sense that what I'm seeing is not actually what's going on, uh, wh- which is, again, the formal sort of uh, comment I think that Greenaway has to make. Uh, and uh, with respect to the autobiographical thing, Peter Greenaway has written about this film um, and it, he calls it a semi-autobiographical film, but only to the extent that he is himself uh, an amateur draftsman and oh. enjoyed a summer of drawing a, a stately home in the manner that the... Semi-autobiographical? Um, the, well, he said the sexual intrigue and the murder are totally separate because okay. he was there okay. with, his, with his family. Uh, okay. but he, fo- he followed the son... Uh, 
as it went around the house doing drafts ah, of drawings okay. up from each angle, okay. which is what the draftsman himself... In a beautiful British summer, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, what the, the draftsman one day himself... Missed. And uh, just to interject, since we are getting to the, the drawings, I think that it's a very pointed decision and a very clever decision as a thematic uh, point to the the entire undertaking of the draftsman's the it was already a period that you have painters doing these things mm. and that he operates in black and white while yeah. living in a world of color. Mm. So yeah. it, it gives that sense, as you said from the beginning, that there's what is being portrayed by the uh, fact that it's a translation almost of the events through Neville's mind because it's a very yeah. point of view perspective of the movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. very outsider kind of. I think as well that black and white are two important colours in this because there's an awful lot of scenes of where like he's wearing black and they're wearing white. And like in yeah. the opening scene, it's like, I think as well just to go oh, back his to his costumes, you were... I wish I could oh, yeah, pull definitely. off. <laughs> the long sleeves. But going back to the, about the opening, um, another and why the opening is so jarring is that they're all very indistinguishable except for Neville. Mm. And initially I was like, okay, that, okay that, that's useful because now I can actually see which one he is. But as it goes on, like it's clear then because whenever he comes back at the end, he's wearing white and they're wearing black because they're in mourning. And it's like this mm. interesting kind of like just to like sort of underlying the difference between them and him mm. that like his feeling of superiority, but all, you know, in the end they have it completely over on top of him kind of mm-hmm. thing. So, um, yeah, I think the use of color and, um, but as well, the etchings or I don't know why I call them etchings. They're not etchings. They're drawings. I just like the word etchings. The drafts. Uh, yes, the drafts. But um, <laughs> I think, yeah, definitely the, showing them um like showing them on screen and the whole idea of like framing and the frame within the frame and like construction within what is itself a construction which is the film Mm. Uh, like almost having like the process of making them and the fact that he has his own frame like oh sort of almost like um pointing towards the fact that the film is in itself sort of constructed Mm. i think it's like it's like um I suppose as well that like they frame him as well. So it's like frames within yeah. frames within frames. But um, I just really, really, really liked watching um, the actual drawings themselves. Like there's something like as just like a side thing. That's, Irish like, paint magic. Something, yeah, something <laughs> like down, even Rock. though it's not not even that it's the process because you don't really see him drawing. But just like um, just seeing them and the way the framing is where you see the drawing and then it, mean, it cuts to the what he sees mm. and it's like going from reality to his version of it and then like seeing the progression of them and stuff like and yeah. the, all the montages of that was really interesting with the lovely music and his description of yeah. how the, oh, the scene that. should be set <laughs> but um John's going back to uh, your point initially about the characters yeah and also being a question for you Ocean to see what your take is because you mm. mentioned the the ideas of the movie but not pointedly address the characters that like individually mm-hmm. that I uh, I believe the entire point of the movie is that they're not a single character that is not a shithead and I think that if there was one character that you had an in for is, because Neville is like you can't like the the guy, but I love him. Yeah, he's like, kind of he's well, kind he of has, a... he has a magnetism and a self assuredness yeah. that is attractive. That, but he does appalling things as well. Yeah, yeah, that it's obviously that he has to be that charismatic to carry favor with the gentry and be able to mm. live in these estates. Like uh, yeah, and to be able bum. to say the things he says to them as well and get away with it. But my point is that if any character wasn't into the movie. I think that it will make the whole piece weaker because... Uh, if, well, if, if what, sorry? The, your point on your opening statements <laughs> was that there, was, there wasn't a character that you yeah, could latch on to. Yeah, they're all wretched. And I think that, that in in a way, it's the entirety of the the point of the movie. That it's that no matter who you look at, even the, the, the servants, uh, the little bit that they show up, they're equally as bad. Yeah. As, <laughs> I'm sorry about the coat. And uh, yeah, and she just like <laughs> throws somebody under the bus, even though buses weren't invented in the 17th century. <laughs> but the the whole concept of the 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 evil that that 
is pervasive in that society that mm. is below the surface as you said the more i watched it the more i call it back to the beginning of the movie as well uh, the fact that it's the the idea it's the only scene really that it shows everybody amongst how they belong in that society like they relate to each other mm. And everyone behaves as the version of themselves that they think everybody sees them as mm-hmm. instead of being more like themselves as the movie progresses. And I think that that fakeness and artificialness is even heightened by the use of crappy camera <laughs> equipment. <laughs> but yeah, coming back to the, the long-winded way of asking a question, uh, what is your opinion on the way that the characters are portrayed in this movie? Um. Oh, and what do they serve to the structure and the ideas of the movie? Well? Yeah, so I I think this is I guess as we've uh, sort of touched on, it is a film uh, of of ideas as opposed to necessarily a a, a dramaturgical film or or a, maybe a, a narrative film in a lot of senses. There is a yeah. narrative there, but that's not what is important. Mm. Uh, what I believe is important here is uh, examining as you say, the point of view of Neville um, and how he frames that reality, but also what he can't help in terms of the unconscious and in terms of the reality of the situation entering that self-same frame. So he has evidence of a crime unbeknownst to him enter the frame of what he is producing. At the same time, he unconsciously desires maybe the death of Mr. Herbert insofar as he is bedding his wife and later his daughter and that murder comes to pass without him knowing at all it's the classical Oedipal sort of narrative of Mm. uh, what is disturbing about Oedipal narratives and look most films worth well most murder films or whatever (laughs) worth their salt will have some sort of Oedipal component in them Um, but what is most disturbing is not the fact that one actively pursues uh, the uh, the killing of the father, but rather that one desires it. And I think that's where this film sort of plums the uh, the sort of difficult depths of the unconscious, and and this is what becomes ultimately the what is disturbing for the for the draftsman. Um, with respect to other characters in the film, I think it's it's as a result easy to see them sort of as. Um, maybe how the draftsman sees them in this cynical sense that we're given because of how unpleasant these people are to view them with the same sort of practiced disdain of the draftsman. And for the beginning, from the first half of the film, at least, I think he's sort of our, uh, our point of reference um, from a narrative point of view is, is maybe the draftsman. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, he's kind of your way into this sort of society, I suppose, because he is, I suppose, closer to, as a, I suppose, like a normal middle class person <laughs> yeah, watching yeah. this, you know, he's you're, he's closer to, you know, what you would imagine your sort of cynical point of view would be. So mm-hmm. of these like ridiculous people. But I don't know if they're all, if you're watching at the start and they're all completely like, because the, the mother is kind of portrayed initially as sort of a sim- slightly sympathetic character. That's true. Which kind of leads to my sort of slight uncomfortableness with the whole, like the... There's like sort of the idea of like him putting the whole thing of him being able to like take his pleasure from her uh, into the contract. And obviously in the end, we found out that they were only doing it to gain the air. But I don't know, it, it makes me kind of uncomfortable that, oh, in the end, they were only doing it for this reason. As if that sort of excuses the like the scenes before where she's clearly very like like uncomfortable with him. Like, you know, he's essentially kind of violating her. So, it, it yeah, it didn't quite. I suppose it's kind of going back to what you were saying about how this is sort of dealing with things that are below the surface and make you kind of uncomfortable because that kind of thing of like exposing what you, I don't know, what the darkest reaches of your mind within, you know what I mean? That it's, so yeah, that, that Um, did, that made me slightly, especially as well, because like, I know in the end it's not you know because you're you're it's conflicting because you do like Neville and every time I'd be like oh god you know he's hilarious you'd be like ah oh, but he's also this creepo mm. you know and it, it's it does it didn't quite in the end whenever they have that like 
just like fantastic i love very much fruit like fruit like fruit is the ultimate metaphor is used in this like but uh even then where she's like explaining like the painting to him and explaining like um let's peruse oh, this painting. Yeah. <laughs> explaining uh explaining the uh the myth around um pomegranates and everything and, and yeah, persephone you know, and yeah uh, <laughs> just like, I, I, I i love that scene actually but um yeah, I, I did, as if that somehow makes it, I, it's, I don't know if it's what he intended necessarily, but I don't think he does true justice to his female characters. Well, and like, it kind of... I kind of disagree with you. And also going back to one of your points, I'm going to try to meld them together oh. in a way of a segue. First, when the, uh, you were talking about the, him... Uh, unknowns to him but almost wishing for the murder to happen mm. that when you said that the first thing that popped in my head is the only time that he reacts to the environment that it's when the shirt appears in the tree and he makes it like makes it more it. Yeah. like yeah. photographic mm. and the that moment is the the moment that he starts uh reacting instead of sitting passively mm. as well and it's interesting as well, like as I was watching it, that it's not a who done it, it's a who will do it. Mm. Because Or it's, who has already done it. Because well, in the, the movie it's made clear that it's it happened quite late in his stay that Mr. Herbert gets murdered because after all it's like twelve days to travel like uh, to carry the body kind of thing it wasn't just lying there yeah for, it's and like, the ho- horse appearing empty it's kind of yeah it's um, towards the end it's like middle to end of yeah the that, like when the the evidence starts popping up it's planted evidence that's what i took from the the movie but then at the end it's like which at what moment it's not planted and it's real evidence because there is real evidence in his drawings as mm-hmm. well but going back to the female characters, yeah. as somebody that hadn't seen the movie or read about it and with a name called The Draftman's Contract, I thought that it was about some pint man or something like some dude that <laughs> just drank a lot of Beamish in some pub in Glasnevin or something. Uh, the Draftman. Yeah, the draft. <laughs> the, 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 the your contract beer. is to drink 30 or more pints <laughs> no I thought like he was like uh, a pub landlord or something like he probably started calling me oh god but uh, the for me watching it straight away because of that scene the sense of the first scene that uh, settles that uh, idea of what's real and what's not and what's been like the performance that are created i never trusted uh mrs herbert as a sympathetic character yeah i always thought that and even when the, the power play comes into play because it's neville's point of view and throughout mm. watching the movie i kept thinking because trying to make sense of it all that is like it's neville's point of view that those scenes are played that way because he feels the power over Mrs. Herbert. Mm. But it, you could easily make uh, the scene on her point of view and that she has all the control there, which she has. And I think it's that power play, even like male kind of... Uh, yeah, well, it's even uh, kind of flipped by when the daughter yeah. then... Like she like in that original scene, it's like as if, oh, she's doing it for her own pleasure. But really, it's like even another level on top of that where she's doing it to use him, basically. Like it's not even to do with pleasure. So so my point is that the only people in the whole film that have their shit together is the two women. (laughs) Yeah, well, and the twins in the end. Sorry. uh, In in the uh, this film is set at a very particular moment in British history which is in 1694, um, which oh, is the year women could, um... of, uh, yeah, what's it called? The Married Women's Property Act. So uh, as a result of this, a woman married to a man who owns land would stand to inherit that land were he to die, whereas before it would pass to a male heir. So uh, this notion of uh, women actually being capable of sort of property ownership is very central to the film. So it, it comes that specific moment in time, which is a change in, I guess, women's history, a change in British history. Um, uh, with respect to the female characters in the film, I, I think there's a moment um, early on, the, the, the draftsman's contract is supposedly a means uh, for Mrs. Herbert to reconcile with her husband, who is 
treats her appallingly by all yeah. accounts. And loves well, his garden. Well, we witness it as well. Yeah, yeah. unpleasant. Um, he says, uh, yeah, I'm going to Southampton. Don't drink my sherry. Uh, <laughs> Was um, it sherry? I'll be back when I when I want to. Some, something uh, pr- pretty unpleasant. Um, and she uh, engages uh, the draftsman, supposedly as a means of reconciling with her husband. And then maybe there's the implication that she actually wants to have sex with the draftsman. Um, mm. As in wants to have sex with the draftsman out of desire. Uh, but after, it, there's a there's a scene where she spits the draftsman's semen into a bowl. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. And at yeah. this point, I'm wondering, <laughs> has she is she doing this? Because she's clearly it, disgusted. Yeah. Is she doing this just to reconcile with her husband? You have to think at this point, there's something else going on here. Yeah, it she kind has... of felt at that point, uh, sorry to interrupt you, um, that the daughter, because it, feel, it felt from the beginning that the daughter was much more nefarious than the mother was. Like, it, it, it didn't, like, when, it didn't come clear to me until much later that the mother was also in it mm. whenever the whole thing's revealed. But I always felt, even up until she kind of, like, you know, brings the, dra- the draftsman into her bed, that because there's a scene early enough where what does she say to the mother where the mother's kind of upset and she's like um uh she's clearly coaching her in, mm. in retrospect she's clearly coaching her but it's like it's it's like this strange kind of uh, i think she says like oh you're doing this to gain back your husband or something yeah um i can't remember exactly what she says but it's it feels more in those scenes that it's um she like the daughter is kind of holding the cards yeah um I, I guess that's that that is the thing is that the, the daughter and the mother here uh, we get increasing sort of hints at the fact that they're uh, they know what they're doing and the the mother with the with the spitting of the semen into the bowl and then the the daughter uh, approaching How does the that draftsman. Show that? <laughs> well, as in, is she doing this? Like you can see, she's doing this. So, what is her motivation? Just to reconcile with her husband? Yeah. She's putting herself through this torture there must be something else that's the first moment for me dr- dramatically where i feel to she has something that, else yeah. uh that that she's doing this for and then the daughter obviously approaches the draftsman and says uh let's strike up a bargain of our own and he obviously registers this somewhat as like she fancies me she also is suggesting that she might be able to frame me for something that might happen but mm. There's this uh, sense, I think, this is why I guess I hesitate to say maybe that there are no sympathetic characters in the film, because these are women that suffer quite a great deal at the hands of the men to whom they're married. And uh, the things that they do, while obviously duplicitous, certainly, um, and that's obviously not, you know, sympathetic to be duplicitous, of course, but... Uh, ultimately what they, they do isn't murder. that bad they don't the, murder anybody <laughs> in the grand scheme of things well or d- draw up a contract where they well I suppose well they, they murder do, somebody do, but well well they are do they one though of, one yeah. of many the, people no but who are at their in own murder. hand do they that's yeah but like know, it's it, kinda... even if it's not it's like the, the reason that if you're uh, they didn't part burn of, someone's eyes out. yeah but if you're part of the conspiracy like a central yeah, part of okay. conspiracy to murder you still get accused for more than the first degree uh, <laughs> it is true it's because it's, it's true that it's, they're legally they're legally unsympathetic yeah, they, yeah. They didn't, <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is that maybe no but what I'm saying is that I agree with your reading there and I didn't think uh, uh, that far out on their their plight as well and it's interesting that uh, another filmmaker might have made them the main characters in this movie mm. instead of Neville and I think it's uh, like why I really loved that movie the, there was so much that I read into it and the more you guys talk the more I'm yeah. getting and but even like we even haven't mentioned Mr. Tolman that is my favourite <laughs> character yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the French uh, oh. the, the, the German <laughs> supposedly German but sounds is French is supposed to be German? yeah he, yeah, yeah, he's oh, yeah he's, he's French but I think but he's from Alsace oh okay, because he'll be like uh, half and half because ah, he's teaching ah. the orphan yeah German uh, German yeah. but at some point in the movie I remember that uh, they uh, they call him a Frenchman Okay. As an yeah. insult, because it's like the seventeen hundred, like seventeenth uh, century. Not as bad as being a Catholic, though. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, that, that Catholic thing gets a lot of. Play. But like I said to Orla in the last episode, that there's nothing that tickles my funny bone more than a, a, a stupid 
English gentry kind of like <laughs> fanciful kind of, and he like every time that he shows up on the movie, I was like, I'm I'm done. I uh, I, I have <laughs> to pause dinners, this movie. The dinners are my favorite thing in this. <laughs> oh, the the first dinner, I have to go exercise a horse. And we've been talking about this movie for about half an hour now, and we haven't even mentioned the the statue that just pops out out yeah. of nowhere. And yeah, I think it's a huge part of the the idea of the movie and. Mm-hmm. That it whole that it, it can mean so many things, and that's what I like about Floating it. Floating signifier. Yeah, and I want you <laughs> like uh, uh, I want you guys to, like to get the, your take on what it means as well. So uh, especially like what an introduction for the idea as well when they're sitting in the dinner he's scene on the roof. <laughs> and it just pops out and he's on the yeah. roof and that he stands like a gargoyle and like the conversation the most menial conversation continues in the background there's this kind of rumble Weird of music in the art. background mm. and it's like the moment that i was like watching this movie i was really really enjoying it and seeing mm. the uh, what greenway wanted to do and when that happened i was like what? you have my full attention now <laughs> uh, <laughs> was that scene uh is um neville not at that point uh alluding to his uh sleeping with oh Mrs. my god what herbert he by say? saying he's enjoying the pleasures of her aging yeah garden. And, and maturing, accus- delights. maturing <laughs> delights of her yeah country garden. and also of her country garden. accusing no, uh, mr noyle the mr noise noise the 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 legal person with the contracts the yeah. friend of the family slight still in love with mrs herbert <laughs> slash i i do not know what his intentions was were throughout the movie and i like that but uh yeah what's your yeah what's your take on the statue what do you mean and as well the yeah. the the fact that some people see him and some people don't and at some mm. scenes like he's completely separate from the action like when he's peeing and he oh. takes the obelisk out only the child can see him no no, like the, no, the no, no, when they are Someone gonna interacts when they're gonna movie. announce that the the uh, Mr. Herbert uh, was killed, the guy that comes to oh, hits yeah, yeah, him yeah, with yeah. the the hat and the the assay, and he just runs <laughs> off. Like right, there's uh yeah, what what it evoked for me, I suppose, is again something similar to the uh, idea of this sense of a of a buried truth or or a truth that's hiding in plain sight, sort of something yeah. which is. Uh, um, again, grotesque and and tried to be swept to the side or under the surface. The the statue pisses and you know uh, sort of mugs and stuff like that um, in various different ways throughout the scenes. And and I think it evokes this general sense of there being uh, something um, that is uh, invisible, uh, that it that is there but felt or not yet known by these people. Um, and uh, yeah, I. Th- I it's obviously a nice neat visual effect also (laughs) um but yeah i think it was mainly to do with that maybe unconscious element i i didn't think that just to go back before getting your take orla i didn't think watching this movie that i'd see like an actual shot of somebody peeing full front on the day. like i I was quite surprised but as well at the same time it's like with the sound it was like oh that's a really nice statue (laughs) like i'd have that in my garden uh you'll see him on graph and see the the strength of the stream of urine actually raise his penis upwards i think that's an interesting thing you don't really see captured on film very Uh, often uh, orla what's your take um, I don't know. I think that, that that's interesting reading that you had. Um, I kind of, initially I was like, it'd be hilarious if this was actually Mr. Herbert and that he was just like <laughs> running around, <he's> like <laughs> observing his wife having this infidelity. Oh but, um, and then, no, then they find the corpse and I was like, damn, that would have been hilarious. But um, I don't know. I kind of saw it as, as how the whole kind of like artifice of their, of their, um, of their like lives and their position and like how they dress you know 24 hours a day seemingly except when they sleep they're they're in this full dress all the time with the makeup and the wigs and everything and it's this constant artifice and this is almost like just one step further of that where and the idea of them not interacting with him mostly is because they see him but it's that you know oh no that's just the art kind of that this is something that they have probably they're probably paying for to have this person there, like almost like a full striking. like a yeah, kind of like a jester. That's why I thought that he was kind of like um, sort of like you know, but but sort of an even higher kind of version of that where 
Um, he's, you know, he just has like a certain number of poses and a certain number of um, famous artworks or famous things that he's supposed to do. And he just kind of wanders around and, mm. you know, really gaining nothing or giving them nothing other than atmosphere and entertaining the things to see out of the corner of your eye. But um, yeah, that's kind of what I, I saw it as. I, I like though that he is sort of like, you, he's it's like in the beginning you know obviously because he's interested he's on the roof and he's like you know you're like what the fuck is that but he becomes more and more prominent as it goes on and he becomes like a, even more outlandish with the things he does and even at the very very end whenever he you know he properly interacts with everything mm-hmm. else that's going on he takes the um he takes the uh what does he eat the pineapple at the very pineapple very end which end. is like oh that's so gross I, suppose, I loved how that was the final shot <laughs> yeah and just you saying this now he is i suppose he's a work of art he's something yeah. which has been made and something which does something mm. um and in terms of the actual drawings which are produced it, this is a very very basic a very clear comparison yeah. that's maybe being drawn here yeah in cartoonish form that these uh th- that Art is something which, uh, in spite of itself, does have a sort of utilitarian function or can have a utilitarian function or can do things that are beyond maybe what yeah. it is intended to do. And or even, I suppose, like, as well, like, trying to evoke, kind of like how, like, the Victorians had, like, um, you know, they, they would recreate, like, Greek... Um, what do you call it? like uh, not like Greek architecture, but like in their gardens and stuff of like mm. trying to like you know take something like give your give your like party or your house even more grandeur kind of mm. like by taking from sort of like well my know. take was completely different than the two of you guys um, again that's why I like this movie because <laughs> you're you're not incorrect on that reading is that the movie like uh, invites different readings to oh, different yeah, events yeah. but my reading um, it came. From the moment at the end, after Neville gets thrown into the same piece of water that Mr. Herbert mm. was thrown into, the when the murder is happening, the the guy, the statue is not mounted on the horse, and after they leave, he's mounted on the horse and he unmounts and he falls into the water and then has to crawl out and eat the pineapple and that's the <laughs> end of the movie. And it can be uh, reminding me of uh, an account that I read years and years ago about why visiting Auschwitz is powerful, even if you don't hear the the history of it, you don't know the history of it. Is the the idea that architecture and places remember pain and suffering, and I think that's why uh, looking back on it, not to the fact that not, I'm not alluding that. Sorry, I'm what, just wondering where you're going with this. That, n- not alluding to the fact that not comparing this estate with Auschwitz, course, but the movie uh, worries so much about architecture and the place itself, so much so that it makes you go back and back to the same places to have the same view of mm. the place. And I think it's the pain and suffering of that building, the, of generation upon generation of it, even like that idea, even given more... Uh, more strength in my opinion with your take on how the women were treated and and yeah. such and especially mm, since the history the, of the since yeah. they were murdered it's like the, the, they murder mr herbert because of their pain and suffering that it's generation after generation and the thought that that is going to continue after as well that and i think that the kid and the guy that sees him he's he's a worker so those are the people that see the pain mm. because kids see pain no matter how you're brought up they they can understand that because they're not blocking it under like you know like you see any uh, even movies about rich people like *Empire of the Sun* or something the, the if they see poor people in the street they ask their parents uh, why are they like that while well, their parents are completely blinding uh, putting blinders on to ignore that so they can have enjoy their life of excess yes and I think that that's uh, the, my take on it uh, yeah, that's interesting uh, yeah and especially because he's deformed and like has like moss and stuff like that that it's kind of like, <laughs> like he's like the building yeah that yeah. It, it, like he's, he's made of the and, building like he crawled out of the wall kind of thing yeah and he only shows up <laughs> when there's like bad things being alluded to or pains being brought into the into the even if it's underneath, like you can feel that somebody was slighted or something, and that's why they're saying what they're saying. And 
I think it's a signifier for that. But again, I could be wrong because this movie is like it doesn't give you a clue for yeah, yeah. for what it is. Apparently, but that's what um, I took from it. Apparently, there is a three-hour cut of this somewhere. Though. Oh my god, I want to see that. Yeah, like what? Well, like I, <laughs> <laughs> I hope um. the opening scene is forty minutes long. As a, <laughs> the power of getting somebody under your spell as a director that you can. Literally, if you have the audience with you, you can do anything, and the and you as an audience member will go, okay, I'll go with that, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. That if you if you're watching any movie with a twist, if the filmmaker hasn't like uh, grabbed you and guides you along and got you under your spell, you just go like, oh, for fuck's sake, uh, if you cheated. Yeah, it's you get that frustration thing. But I think as well that like, he undercuts the the twist because you know way before. Uh, Neville that the game is up the what it is and then you're that kind of weird moment that as an audience member you know more than the the main, main character, character does is, yeah. you have that moment just before he follows Mrs. Herbert back into the house and he walks slowly behind her and at this point he's dressed in white while she's dressed in black and a flock of sheep are in the background yeah. slowly walking and he's just kept in frame with them and you at that point I think it's a pretty on the nose yeah, you're sort of depiction ship, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, um, that he is still uh, still holds this position of sort of arrogance and yeah. total naivety kind of to the end come really. on sheeple I yeah. think um, yeah I think I saw it, uh, he did it like I don't know what the injury was for if it was just like a random quote or something where um quite recently actually because he did a film out not that long ago uh, where he basically said that modern film audiences are lazy and that they're being fed you know like they're being constantly fed this diet of um you know mediocre obvious films and I think he like as I don't I haven't seen any of his more recent work and I wonder as he you know like ages and like do, is his filmmaking becoming more and more like abstract or like have you seen any more of his i know i know him by reputation and it's somebody that uh watching this and seeing like knowing that it's one of his earlier works i uh, think it's his first feature isn't it first narrative feature oh. the like i know that he kind of has a very loose interpretation of one narrative is <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And as such, uh, just one quick last question before we move into uh, final thoughts. Uh, what a feeling you had after watching the movie for the first time? What was the? How did you feel when when the movie ended and the credits rolled? I was very confused <laughs> uh, the first time I watched this film, and I didn't. Uh, I didn't quite understand how the murder could have taken place uh, and I was in the dark as to that I put that down to my own lack of paying attention and maybe focusing on the wrong aspects yeah um, too I'm much being, of the draft one <laughs> yeah it's the day not, before. <laughs> I realise this is not an interesting reflection but it is an honest one and you asked me what my thoughts were the first time I watched the film it was that um, but it, it, I, I certainly felt I want to watch this film again as soon as possible, having watched it as well. So, good answer, um, Orla. Kind of like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like that kind of like sort of like unclean sort of, oh, yeah. you know, that kind of feeling. But like, also, I felt unclean because I really enjoyed it, even though there are aspects of it that I didn't quite like. You know, that kind of feeling. Yeah. You're like, Ngh. you felt guilty for yeah, liking it, but of, not because of the quality of, of the movie. Yeah. More like the, yeah, exactly. The, like, not that this is like trash and you're like, oh, no, this is like, you know, one of those guilty pleasures or something. It's not that. It's like that. It's a different. It's a, you know, it's a more interesting feeling, I suppose. But um, yeah, like glad that I'd watched it, but also kind of like, you know, just a little uncomfortable <laughs> somehow. And any last questions, Oshin, uh, since? Um, I guess one thing I'd be uh, keen to maybe bring up is Michael Nyman's score for the film. Oh, yeah. And we've alluded to this a couple of times before. Uh, it was actually uh, modern arrangements of 19th century English composer Henry Purcell's work, which is oh. what gives it that sort of um, uh, maybe... Uh, slightly incongruous sort of feeling yeah. in that it sounds yeah. like sort of chamber music or something but it's but played on this fancy slightly um, synthy almost yeah, yeah. Uh, he went on to do uh, the score for The Piano and Man on Wire 
uh, later on as well. Oh, wow. Oh, that's a uh, good know, filmography I didn't know there. he did yeah, uh, Man on Wire. Interesting. But it's, it's a weird kind of movie, now that you mention music, that, like, especially coming out of the 80s, uh, I wouldn't have been, like, disappointed if this movie had, like, some techno pop in it. Like, if, <laughs> like, Talking Heads <laughs> had made a mu- like, yeah, some song for with, it or something. Witness soundtrack or yeah. something. Jean-Michel Jarre style. I think it's wonderful. There's the first moment where he... Uh, I think he walks out into the courtyard and he's about to begin his drawing and there's this pulsating music yeah. and yeah. it really is it's quite like when I first heard time. that he's like striding across the uh, across this gravel with these manicured sort of phallic shrubs uh, uh, <laughs> in, in frame and I was just like that is there's certain moments where soundtracks catch you in a sort of quite visceral way and it's yeah. quite unusual because this film is something which really lacks sort of that visceral thing. It's far more sort of cerebral in a lot of ways. Yeah. But, but I thought the score worked wonderfully to sort of undercut the um, the aesthetics of the film. And it's a visually. genius uh, orchestration. I didn't know that it was an adaptation of a, a previous recorded, like written music. Because uh, usually scores fall into two categories of good scores, let's say. That is the memorable ones, let's say like a John Williams or James Horner, Hans Zimmer, that you can kind of home and you feel like yeah. uh, iconic almost, like Indiana Jones, that it makes you feel good to listen to that song. Or the score that doesn't call attention to itself because it becomes so embedded in the movie. This is weird because it works wonderfully. But it is neither memorable as like the you don't come out like it's not even that they're playing some Bach or something like noble music that you just start bopping your head almost. And you have already a relationship with that music. (laughs) Yeah, but it's not fading into the background either. Yeah, that it calls attention to itself. So it's it's quite like it is a genius kind of balance that he strikes there. Like it becomes part of the tapestry of the the. Of the film, and as you said, tapestry that's a good word. As a filmmaker, is embrace all the aspects of filmmaking from set design to yeah. performance, casting, it is a image. Yeah, that literally it's layer upon layer, and each one tells you something else from the wigs to the boots. Like, literally, the, the clothes mm. are the, the clues to what is happening in the movie. Mm. To performance shot music dialogue sound editing that there's a few really cool transitions in sound between scenes so oh i didn't notice that yeah like especially when he's around water that there'll be like somebody uh cleaning the the water after mr herbert died yeah and you hear him because of the weeds because he's afraid of falling down the water so he thinks mm. that it's like hiding the water because of the rain the, it goes like that and you hear the the guy clearing and the sound cuts off halfway through he's doing it and you mm. just hear another character doing moving around so it creates this weird sense that like during the mix i noticed another point that like sounds disappear but other sounds get like yeah brought up and it's very subtle but very yeah, unsettling that's, like yeah the, that's one of the aspects that's going on even whenever he's just sitting there and it's just like you're noticing it but you're not noticing it um i find that like the amount of people that there are constantly roaming around the gro- the grounds of this house kind of weirded me out slightly even though that it's kind of and a lot of the time they're like there in the background and people are talking about them but they're not even more than a few yards away from them it's like this weird yeah. thing of like being like as if you're on a stage and you're implying that there's all this distance but mm. you're not on a stage you're outdoors there's all you know it's like this weird but it's not that it doesn't work necessarily it reminded like me of uh, buster keaton's rule of filmmaking that because obviously there was no sound in his filmmaking that uh, anything that wasn't in the frame doesn't make a sound mm. So, for example, that's why gags that like he's sitting in a in a chair and a train goes by in the background that he's startled when the train shows up in the in the shot, <laughs> yeah. because it's like what is in the frame is what's real. Yeah. So if you break that up to two shots, like it becomes a different motif than what it mm. is there, and it's the fact as well that when they're talking about the other people, it's like how little they think of the other person that yeah uh, the, not even to, give to care a shit. to yeah. you know step away or you know like to be quiet or whatever yeah you brought up there uh, mr herbert is scared of falling into the water 
uh, and so he has uh, meticulously allowed it to be overgrown with algae. Oh yeah, uh, is that this is correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think once again, I mean, to return to the motif of the unconscious and the the repressions that are. Um, uh, I suppose necessitated by the class position of these people. I think that's a really interesting metaphor. Again, it's not one that I picked up on, and, but so much and of this a, film is and, about and repression. it's referred yeah. as a moat as well. Yeah. So it's the, the yeah, idea of it, the yeah. siege, and I don't think that it's a coincidence as well that he's recovered from said moat. Yeah. So uh, it's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's said it, moat. Well, like uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it 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 ties in perfectly. Is that this is an unconscious crime before it ever becomes yeah. one which yeah. happens in reality? It's constantly. This man is it's being signposted. Pulled out of what I've just realised is, I suppose, the central metaphor within that film for the unconscious. So yeah, cool. Uh, so yeah. moving to last thoughts, uh, Oshin, what's your favourite thing about the movie? Um. Hmm. My favorite thing about the movie is Neville's uh, voiceover and the sort of deep timbre his, uh, his, voice is his, his voice has. It really is fantastic because uh, he looks a bit like Rob Brydon, but he has this. He looks like Rob Brydon. Oh, and so when he does these voices, He's it so seems like Rob handsome. Brydon doing a voice almost, particularly He's so much more handsome than Rob Brydon. Um, he looks like Rob Brydon uh, meets uh, Jason Isaacs. Yeah, there's a little bit, a little bit of Jason Isaacs in there. Hello yeah. to Jason Isaacs. Um, um, Orla, what's your favorite thing? Um, probably the language and like just use of words like meretricious. <laughs> and uh, oh, there was a few like as well, kind of like within just like the pairing of words. Uh, and just like when they're talking about like mundane things like the disposition of the linen yeah. you know just like oh like I could listen to that all day yeah just like when they're talking about like the pictorial c- conceit when they're like talking about the painting what's the painting actually they're describing I can't remember I, I can't remember either it's like a fucked up looking painting yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> it's like ah is murder being planned yeah, like, like hmm. do you perceive narrative in these apparently uh, <laughs> on uh what is it? Unconnected episodes. Yeah. <laughs> and as well, like the fact that they, as I said before, the, he goes, let's peruse this painting. Wow. <laughs> like I love that, that word. And in a way, it draws peruse. you in the same way that as we were talking about that it draws you in as an audience the same way that the characters do. Like when he said that I nearly leaned into the yeah. screen to get more from the film. Like mm. you want, you start, the more the film goes along, the more reading it requires. And I think it's one of yeah. the genius it's of the movie that you, it, um... it builds on it. And that's why I think the first scene is genius because it sets the the frame of mind that you want you need to be to understand and enjoy this movie yeah it makes but you, when you're you watching it the first time it, you don't understand it, it you go like what the yeah. fuck am i watching <laughs> but at the same time is that as soon as it it's over it makes more sense as you go along mm-hmm. and it's like the the foundation of the movie like any good building that without it it might look pretty but it would collapse mm. um <laughs> Which is a good metaphor for once. Uh, but my favorite thing... Uh, Sorry, Ricardo. Ricardo, what's your favorite thing? Ah, thank you for asking. Uh, my favorite thing is... I believe it. it is the, the whole visual aspect of the movie because uh, I think it's a movie that almost... like we've, we've discussed before in the podcast that if you turn off the sound, you can understand what's happening. Mm. Even though how complicated the language is and the plot is, is because first and foremost, it is a film. Yeah. So it is. It has to work on those terms. Yeah. And as well as one of those, like a great movie is something that cannot exist in any other medium. Like you couldn't tell this story in a novel and have, like, even if it was adapted in the novel, I doubt that the novel would be as good as the movie because so much of it comes from the, the layers, as we discussed, of the different like levels of filmmaking and, yeah. the all down from directing to probably catering because the actors seem happy to <laughs> to to act in it the, everybody's in their a game like somebody giving like fry ups on the on the <laughs> sunday after the the, the secret to good filmmaking is catering well it's like uh, well, uh, napoleon said an army marches on its stomach <laughs> 
but Oshin, uh, if there is a least favorite thing, what would it be? That's a hard one to answer. Um, I find because I spent so much time trying to wrap my head around the film that I, I'm giving it a lot of credit <laughs> for all the things that I may not understand that may not have gelled. Um, there are moments where the film is uh, perhaps too literal, as we've discussed in in, uh, in the expression of its ideas. Uh, and Greenaway is a, a film essayist as well as an art filmmaker and all the rest. So there's kind of a hodgepodge of... Uh, of things going on here um the fact that uh neville is eventually blinded in classical oedipal fashion um <laughs> is no accident and probably needs to happen um although i i feel like the the climactic scene um and that murder um that that sort of that finishes the film has the qualities more of a um of a thought being enacted than than a literal murder, yeah, and, and maybe when we actually bear witness to a crime on screen, uh, because of course Mr. Herbert's uh, murder happens off screen and in in I guess that unconscious space, mm. but Neville's murder eventually by these men uh, it doesn't escape that sense of just being a metaphor for for an idea that maybe Greenaway had, and I wonder if that's a weakness. Um, certainly it's something which I, I'm uh, maybe not 100% satisfied with how that is actually executed in the film mm. Orla? Yeah <laughs> probably like yeah just all the scenes of like general sort of him forcing himself on Mrs. Herbert are because <coughs> even though like up until the point she spits under the sink they're not particularly graphic but they're just like quite uncomfortable and I don't think even necessary to have them. I think kind yeah. of in the way of of the the murder where even though you don't quite see it, it almost feels like they're showing you too much somehow. You know that, yeah, I don't know. It didn't... I kind of disagree with that because uh, my reading at that moment is that that's what's happening in her bedroom regardless of Neville being yeah, there. Yeah, but like... Because of the way that Mr. Herbert treats her. So like, well, I think that... Not no but in the fact but, that they have kids and stuff so you imagine their sexual relationships to yeah. be as cold and fucked up as their actual relationship uh, like in public in yeah. view of everybody when everybody else is so full of artifice their dislike mm. for each other is quite obvious I mean, is it uh, I, I guess i don't know if necessary or unnecessary might be the best way of approaching it but it, yeah it, probably it, not but i think of, it's just that it feels th- yeah but it's depicting i mean is it necessary to depict man's cruelty towards women or ma- a man's cruelty towards these women uh, i think maybe yes if it if it yeah. weren't depicted then we have a very different view of what's going on in this relationship. Yeah, well, it's not that those scenes shouldn't be there. It's just that I felt that the way they were handled... Well, well, like, I think that it's handled to be disgusting because... But at the same time, it's even more disgusting because there's some matter of fact because you're in Neville's headspace. Yeah. And I think that it gives more power to the fact of how seedy and shitty Neville is. Yeah. If it's played in any other way... It is kind of undermining the the actual events that are happening. It's the old saying that if you're going to show violence on screen, you might as well just show it as it is because otherwise you're glorifying it. That if you if you just have one squirt of yeah, blood, but like it, this is kind of not that it's glorifying it, but it's like I mean he's having <coughs> he's like chatting to her, and you know it's it's got the same sort but of. But it's like, the matter of fact of how, uh, yeah, you know what I mean. And, it's I, not... and I think as well, especially coming from nineteen eighties, like where you're looking at it from the perspective of twenty seventeen. Yeah, oh, as I well. know, I know. And I think that like where there wouldn't be as much of a portrayal of a scene that way that the like every other portrayal. of that I can think of, like for example, even Brian De Palma's, uh, uh, oh, what's the, the the war film that he did with Sean Penn and Michael J. Fox uh, from in Vietnam? Can, uh, the name escapes me, but that there's a rape scene there, and the whole purpose of the rape scene is not to show how shitty Sean Penn's character is; it's to show how good Michael J. Fox's character is for trying to stop the rape. <laughs> okay, yeah. And like rape it's in the eighties in movie yeah. is there to show how good the <laughs> male character who doesn't rape is. Yeah. You know, like how look at this guy; he doesn't rape. He's a good guy. <laughs> kind of mm. like past the the. 
But to get my least favorite thing, sorry, uh, just sorry, to wrap it up. Uh, <laughs> it like you didn't let me, let me conclude. Ricardo, you didn't let me conclude what is there. Your you just kind of went thing, off. Thank you, Asin. Uh, <laughs> well, my, I think like. I agree with you with the ending part, but more than anything is because so many other films and parts have borrowed from it. And I didn't notice that even like the ending of Hot Fuzz called, uh, like it really reminded me of that. And I started watching it. I just imagine like uh, fucking Simon Pegg just popping out and like Ron Hall's kicking somebody talking like about Patrick Swayze or something. Uh, but like, I, I do agree that I think it's something that should have been showed off screen almost. I think that it's the only moment that is like maybe a slight misstep that if they told him that it's what they're going to do to him. Yeah. And then uh, cut to the maybe to the statue and mm. you hear everything. You yeah. hear him that, falling in the water and then the he comes horrible down. horrible sex scenes. Though, no, but, but like it doesn't need to be shown. It's like. I think it's, it's completely that, implied that this guy is a creepo. But I think it's not that, a, that the, the, the sex thing is a physical event. While the murders, like you said, are part of the subconscious and psychological effect. Especially, like, a lot of it I might be bullshitting because I just talking to you guys made me reassess the movie in so many mm-hmm. different ways that uh, <laughs> perhaps what I said in the beginning of the podcast I disagree with <laughs> now and that's why I really like the movie and yeah but it's not it's uh, as you're saying if, it, if that is off screen it's more truly Oedipal uh, Oedipus yeah. is blinded off stage um, and that's the way it should always be. So the film's not Oedipal enough. Um, <laughs> it's not uh, true to its Oedipal nature. Don't drop the mic now, Ashin. Okay. <laughs> I can't. It's literally on a stand. But yeah. Outstanding. But, uh, okay. Uh, so that was the what I believe to be the amazing Draftman's contract. Uh, Orla quite liked it as well. I did, yes. And... Oshin obviously uh, is a good egg for your choosing this movie. <laughs> um, Thanks, Oshin. Thank Oshin. you so much for having me. Oh, thank um, you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, this is really yeah, good. It's wonderful. Thank you. And Oshin, um, when is Totally Dublin out and where they can find you online? Uh, uh, totally Dublin is out every month. It's free in Dublin City. Uh, in mo- most cinemas, IFI or Lighthouse, if you're there. And, and many other places also and you can find me online at twitter.com slash g-o-a-m-o-a one five <laughs> very Gamoa good 15. very good <laughs> next week we're back to a normal episode Zorla's pick uh, what are you choosing Orla? a face in the crowd and um, where can they find us uh, they can find us on Twitter at The Rec Game. They can find us on Facebook at The Recommendation Game. You can also email us at therecommendationgame at gmail.com. And you can find us on Dublin Digital Radio's Mixcloud, where we go up every Monday evening. So I was Orla McNeilis. Uh, I'm Machine Murphy Hall. And I am Ricardo Deacon. Thank you for listening. See you next week.